I've always had this sort of restlessness inside of me to find the path, the tradition, the person, the community, the perspective that was somehow going to fix me. I almost had this sense, like if I wasn't careful, I was going to somehow do life wrong. And so I was always looking for the right way to do life. I was looking for the map or the thing that was going to tell me what was right. I'm David Alaku, and this is The Knowledge, a podcast for anyone looking to think deeper and work smarter. In every episode, I speak with makers, thinkers, and innovators to help you get more out of life. This week, I'm speaking with Bob Gower. He's an author, speaker, and consultant, and we had a really interesting conversation about group dynamics. I mean, we started off talking about cults and the way that we form our identities, both as individuals and as groups. And then we were talking about cults of leadership within startups. So we touched on Theranos and Uber and WeWork. And then we talked about what it takes to bring great teams together and help teams to collaborate. And Bob shared some thoughts from his book, Radical Alignment, on how we can lead more effectively. So I really love this conversation. I know you will also. You can get the show notes, transcript, and read my newsletter at theknowledge.io. And you can find Bob online on LinkedIn at Bob Gower and on Twitter at Gower underscore Bob. If you love this episode, please do share it with friends and strangers. And don't forget to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts because it helps us tremendously to reach other people just like you. Okay, let me set the stage. We had a conversation the other day. I don't remember exactly all the questions I was asking you. We both run courses and we were talking about the synergy in terms of my courses on helping people to take their careers to the next level, but largely from mid-level to getting towards senior level. And your course is for senior leaders. So it's kind of like I am teaching the people that will end up being in your course. And you were telling me about some of your background, which is what I want to get into today. And you were sprinkling in all kinds of like random things. At one point you worked with newspapers and then at one point you joined a cult. That part hasn't left my mind since the <laughs> since the conversation yeah. that we had. So I hope you don't mind me asking you to dig into your background as a whole and yeah, where would you say things began for you? Yeah. So, you know, I was raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia. They're upper middle class suburbs. The community I was raised in actually has, how to put it, there, there's it's a very class conscious community. And we were not of the upper class in that community. So we were middle class, even upper middle class. But it's a community that has, at least at that time, it still did the sort of the debutante ball thing where Women would be, you know, they would come out, they would be presented to society at like 15 or 16. There was a social register, so you know who was who. And in my neighborhood where I grew up, there were, you know, people who had run, who were running large corporations. There was even a purported mafia boss who lived in my neighborhood. You know, this was Philadelphia in the 70s. Uh, so the mob was still was still a big thing. And actually, the government there was in the in Philly was very much still controlled by the mob. And, and certain industries were at that time, too. So it was a very sort of colorful area and an old Italian neighborhood. But my family, my mom was from West Virginia which is an impoverished area. She was wealthy in West Virginia. She came from a family of basically hillbillies, right? So her family had been coal miners and all of this. And her father had managed to kind of get out of that by becoming a dentist in during the First World War. And then my father was raised without a father in coastal North Carolina. And so he was also raised in poverty and, and, and his generation was the first to go to college. So it was very much my parents had me late in life. So even though... I'm a Gen Xer. They were more World War II, sort of what they might call either the greatest generation or the silent generation. So there's sort of a, an odd world to be born into, I suppose, right? There's a lot of social upheaval. I was born in 65, a lot of social upheaval in the 70s. And then my parents were both conservative, but also encouraging of me to be myself. You know, my dad had been in the military and he definitely didn't want me to go into the military. And he definitely wanted me to kind of like be myself. So I grew up as this as this sort of like liberal hippie in the midst of, you know, like conservative, you know, like I worked at a recycling center. I wanted to do good. I wanted to make the world a better place. I was interested in Eastern religions. I took Tai Chi classes in high school, right? So I was this kind of like odd, I felt sort of like an odd misfit in that area. And like many people, I think I just couldn't wait to leave. And I'm still surprised when I know some of my best friends from high school stayed. And I'm like, how did you stay? 
of course they're retiring now really wealthy and I'm now still still doing my thing but but, but yeah but it was a, it's sort of an interesting a very interesting world I think to grow up in and a very and one where I learned to spot hypocrisy at a very young age because I would see people who I thought were doing really bad things for their work come to church each day and then sort of like pray and and you familiar with the the prosperity gospel basically that says yeah. if you do good you will be rich and which then gets inverted, whereas if you are rich, you have therefore done good. You are therefore a good person. And I grew up around a lot of that. And it just sort of, and I think, like, that's what Trump grew up in, actually, frankly. And I, and I, I saw that hypocrisy, and it just annoyed me to no end. And I think, and frankly, it still does. Like, I still kind of really deeply dislike the social system of where I grew up, you know. So that's where it started. <laughs> yeah, that's a great introduction. No, the prosperity gospel part, I empathize with that a lot. So I'm originally Nigerian and I came to the UK from Nigeria, but we have a huge culture of kind of Pentecostal Christianity. Right. And well, not the whole of Nigeria, but you know, within the, the Christian part, there is a lot yeah. of prosperity preaching. And it's so interesting how I don't want to use the word like insidious, but I think it is very interesting that, like you say, it's almost the reverse. It's you see far less examples of the people that do the the things that they say you need to do in order to get the wealth, yeah. and more people that already have the wealth telling you that oh this is what you need to do, yeah. and and part of what you need to do is handing over your wealth to them in the promise that at some point later down the line some of it will come back to you. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I see this a lot. This is something I've become very aware of myself even in myself and in my own attitudes as I've, as I've gotten older. Because I think prosperity of gospel gets then converted into the, are you familiar with like the secret and this idea of manifestation and yes. abundance and all of that that comes out of sort of the personal development world, which I was also embedded in for a long time in the Bay Area. And, you know, I also studied Zen Buddhism for a long time. Like I was very much embedded in these like sort of like, how do we make ourselves better people world? But then that gets infected by the prosperity gospel idea as well that, you know, like that. And, and, and then being good gets very much conflated with having a lot of money or, you know, like doing well. Right. So and yeah. I think that happens in all sorts of places, like also like thin people, you know, and fit people are seen as somehow morally better than people who are who struggle with their weight or their, you know, or, or who consider the, themselves fat and whose society has, you know, and the same is true of, I think, racial distinctions and gender distinctions and all of these different things. But to my mind, most of that comes down to luck, right? And so like, I feel like I had the good luck to be born into a wealthy family that valued education and that messed me up, but didn't mess me up so much, right? Like I didn't get so messed up that I ended up, you know, like I, ended, I had my, my share of childhood trauma and I have a certainly a strained relationship with my family, but it's, but I, but I also managed to, it was, it was something that didn't take me down. I've seen people's family systems really, really kind of like hurt them over the course of their lives and and, and set up patterns that were un unhelpful. But again, I count this as all a lot of luck on my part. It's not that I haven't worked hard. It's not that I don't continue to work hard. But from the place from which I work is a place from which I can have an impact, right? It's much easier. I'm a tall, white male who's able-bodied. I'm cisgendered. I, you know, I grew up, you know, like I, I can easily sound like I belong in most sort of executive boardrooms and other places. I understand the language. I look like I belong. I look like, you know, I don't ever have to like worry about that thing. I still have to show up and work once I get there, but I, I honestly feel like I don't have to work quite as hard sometimes to be as successful. And sometimes that has even worked against me, right? It's made me not try so hard in some things as well. What do you think it was that made you able to pull away from the potential trappings of your background? I almost don't even feel like I had a choice and maybe it's some degree of luck. I do feel like I've always been kind of a sensitive person, right? Like, so when I would see you know, an animal hurt or when I would see, I, I, it, I felt it very deeply. And I'm aware that maybe that's almost like a neurological disposition, right? That I just sort of happened to like, empathy is a thing that sort of is more available to me. And, and I also had a very strong sense of fairness, I think, from a young age. And I, and it really, really upset me that, you know, people in other parts of the world or even other parts of my town didn't have the same opportunities or the same access to resources that I did. And it's sort of, I, I always had this like sort of deep sense of, of injustice, right? That the world is this unequal, unequal, unjust place and it shouldn't be. And I don't, you know, like, and I don't have like a theory of justice. I went off into college and I studied, you know, I studied Rawls. I studied, you know, like I studied philosophy and, and sort of like looking at different theories of justice. And I, so I have these 
now I have a little more language to put around it. But I honestly think when you like, I've always cared about making the world a more equitable and more sustainable place, right? Because I grew up thinking about actually at a young age, this is a, a, a sort of formative memory of mine. If you have you ever heard of the Three Mile Island nuclear accident, it was Three Mile Island. Yeah, I think it may even still be active as nuclear plant near um, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is far from where I grew up. But that weekend, I was supposed to be with the Boy Scouts hiking near nearby. And so we actually had to cancel our trip because there was this potential nuclear accident. There was a, a sudden release of radiation there. And that was it like just the right age where I was like, well, wait, what is nuclear energy and why is this dangerous? And then I became sort of anti, you know, like this was the, the 80s or late 70s, early 80s. So I became very interested in like sort of the environmental impact of things and the social impacts of things. I, be, I sort of tried to understand capitalism and like why, why do some people have more and some people have less? All of these questions have always been sort of central questions for me. They've always been things that have kind of bugged me. And I think I've always been looking for answers to. And I don't know exactly why, because it's not necessarily from a position of like, it's not like I was, I came from wealth and power. I came from a certain amount of wealth, but I know some people that grew up, you know, like there's, you know, the people that grew up extremely wealthy who then dedicate themselves to sort of social justice on the other side of that. And they have resources to throw behind it. I never had that. I always felt yeah. at both limited by the financial system that I grew up in and and a critic of it, right? Yeah, the church thing you mentioned was interesting. It made me think of just yesterday, I was uh, listening to a story. Uh, well, not story in the uh, literal sense. It was a historical event. I think it was quite a number of years ago, probably, I think sometime in the 80s, but there was a church in the US. I can't remember exactly where, mm -hmm. but it blew up essentially. And the time at which it blew up was at 7.05 and the choir practice was meant to start at seven exactly. Mm. So the, the church was meant to be filled with about like 30 plus people. And every single one of them was late by some stroke of luck, yeah. just a complete miracle. Every single person was late and they all had their own individual re reason for being late. Some people, maybe they were they were reading, some people lost track of time, but it was just in incredibly interesting, that coincidence. Yeah. And I f what I find interesting, tying that back to, to your story is also that I think it's interesting how some events can happen in our lives and people can take almost uh, striking point in very different directions. Mm -hmm. So there are some people that can see that happen and say, wow, this was the hand of God. Everything we were doing must be right. We must go even further in this direction. But for you in your circumstance, it's also a point where you say, okay, hold on. Why did this happen? What were the causes? What might we want to look closer at and deeper at? And what maybe should we change to avoid ending up in that kind of situation? Because I think the reason why this church blew up in this scenario was I think something to do with carbon monoxide. They were just releasing some gas inside the church. And I don't think it actually led to any kind of change. I didn't see anything about like policy change or anyone investigating the cause in, in serious concern. It was more about this miracle and this fantastic thing that happened, yeah. which is why we should continue exactly the way that we were <laughs> doing things. I was just thinking, I, I was listening to something yesterday about, I think it was Daniel, Daniel Kahneman, you know, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. He won the Nobel Prize for something a few years ago. Anyway, he talks about like the uses of intuition and that if we use intuition to make decisions like our feelings, we will almost always lead ourselves astray because we're going to mistake correlation for causation. And I think that's sort of an example of that, right? That kind, you know, and I don't want to diminish anybody else's faith at, at, at all. I'm, I'm not here to do that. But I, I will say for myself that I spend a lot of time in these, let's call it alternative and wellness spaces and yoga spaces and meditation spaces. And there's a lot of sort of magical thinking that in that in that in that invades those spaces, right? And so we end up thinking, well, I have this intuition about this thing, therefore that thing is right. And I can't tell you how many people have told me about myself, right? And I think it's pure projection most of the time. And I've done it to other people as well. I was like, I'm sensing this from you, and therefore this is happening. But I think the what I've gained, gained real appreciation for the older I've gotten is like just kind of like how little I know about myself, how little I know about the world, how little I know about like what will actually have the impact that I wanted to have. If I'm working with an organization, sometimes it's the smallest thing that has the biggest impact and I it for good or for bad. And I don't like I can't even intuit that or I can't see that ahead of time. And it's really created this kind of humility in me. I hope anyway. I, he says, I'm so humble. I'm like the most humble person now ever. But like I do, but I do have this sort of sense of like, I don't really know what's going on most of the time. Like I try to like approach the world and I find that if I approach problems from that space, I just tend to do much better. Sure. Yeah, I completely agree. And I know you mentioned before 
about you getting into this wellness space and all of the positive affirmations, a lot of that kind of thing. And then also you going to Japan, I think, and and looking into Buddhism and a lot of other things. And, And the question that I'm interested in is what, was this a case of, were you running to freedom or away from freedom? And to paraphrase where I'm getting that from, so Eric Fromm is a psychologist and he has a a great book called Escape from Freedom. And and what he talks about is that there's two types of freedom. And sometimes we're looking for freedom from, so freedom from the things that uh, we feel are imposed on us. And sometimes we're looking for freedom to, in terms of freedom to do other things and to explore a lot further beyond our current constraints. So what do you think that was? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I th- you know, it's it's interesting. I think sometimes you think it's one and it turns out to be the other. And I'm trying to remember, like, I was actually phrasing this to myself the other day. I don't think it wasn't quite in like Fromm's framework. It was more like thinking about, you remember with Ernest Becker and the denial of death. It's this wonderful book of philosophy where he basically says, basically everything humans ever create is because we're afraid of dying and we're trying to create something that that's going to last beyond us. So any book I write or any money I amass or or anything I do. And I feel like I've spent a lot of my life, I'm going to answer it in my own way and maybe it'll fit with the Fromm framework and maybe it won't. But like, I feel like there's been a lot of times in my life when I've been trying to, let's say, oh, actually, it's fun. I'm going to use a a very, very solid example. I was just talking to my wife about this this morning. So, uh, you know, like any family, especially those in New York City, you know, like we think about money a lot, right? We think about like, like, can we buy a house now? Can we do the, you know, can we afford this vacation? Can we not afford this vacation? And we've, you know, we do pretty well financially, but we're, we're far from, from financially independent and, you know, far, far from our own interpretation of incredibly secure, right? There's always a sort of sense of insecurity around, around finances. And one of the things I've noticed is though, that we are much better now than I was say 10 years ago with my finances. Like I know what I can afford. I know what I can't afford. I know how much money is coming in, how much is going out. I've got really good systems in place. And I also notice that I tend to buy things less, right? Like I tend to do less impulse buying because I think in the past, what I've done is I will go out and like buy a new pair of sneakers because I want it because it's going to make me feel better. And I'll kind of ignore the financial implications of that. I'll kind of, you know, like, because I'm like, because I really want the sneakers because I really want to feel better. But what's interesting is, is, is that the more sort of like in control and systematized I feel about my money and the more modest I've become, the more I like, I don't need to like flash money to make myself feel better. I don't even need to like demonstrate to the world that I'm wealthy, right? Like there are times where I have to like dress up and go to a fancy restaurant in order to make myself like feel like I'm a part of the, you know, like look how fan, you know, New Yorkers, right? We're always status, so so status conscious. And I'm like, look at me, I'm at the Plaza Hotel having a, you know, having a martini and because I'm, because I'm fancy, but inside I don't feel like quite like I am. And I think kind of like, this is sort of, maybe it's freedom from and freedom to, but like, I think much of my life, there are times when I have, I felt like I've been seeking a new experience. I've gone out for a new experience or a new skill set or a new, yeah, just a new experience. Like I've gone out to kind of like, and I'm very much experience focused. Like I enjoy collecting people. I enjoy collecting experiences, trying new things. I enjoy these things a lot. But there have been times when it's been a running away from something inside of myself. It's been times when it's like, I'm doing this to distract myself from this very uncomfortable thing I'm feeling. And what I find now is that I'm much, the pandemic has helped, honestly. I developed a kind of stillness because I'm at home so much and I have a very strong like journaling practice where I reflect every day on my life. And what I notice is that sometimes it's that, that those sort of quiet practices give me much more real freedom, just like the money, like the mundane money practices give me a much more real freedom in life rather than this illusion of freedom that comes from you know, going on a fancy experience or having some big distraction come my way. Yeah. I don't know if that resonates at all. I don't know if that fits in the from framework at all. No, no, it does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it does. So yeah. one, one thing that I'm interested to know is I'm not sure what the exact timeline is between some of these more exploratory phases of your life and whatever the traditional route might look like in terms of the time at which you're expected to go to college or the time at which you're expected to start working. How do you find that delineation? And I guess as a consequence of that, was there something that you learned from that period of exploration that maybe changed your trajectory in some ways? Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, so I've had anything, but I think a traditional trajectory, I certainly did go to college at the right time. 
the right time, right? But I also went to three different colleges and had like four different majors and took five years to get out, which was uncommon. In I think it's more common today than it was in, in the 80s when I was going to college. You know, so I, and I also studied things kind of pointedly that had no value, you know, like, or no, no material value. So my, I had a, my degree was in essentially philosophy at its core. And then I also, I went to a school where you could kind of like write your own degree. It was the sort of this very experimental college is where I graduated from in Arizona. And so I also did a lot of traditional, I'd call it a traditional craft, which sounds very, very hippie now, but I was doing furniture making and doing pottery, like traditional pottery on the wheel and then making traditional furniture. And then I was also writing papers on aesthetic, on different aesthetic traditions around, I was especially interested in the Shakers, which were, you know, sort of an 18th century religious movement here in the U.S. that created a whole style of furniture, which you still see all over the place in the U.S. Shaker tables and Shaker chairs are, are, are still very, very common. And I was very interested in sort of the aesthetic traditions and how the philosophical and religious foundations of those communities informed the ascetic traditions. That actually led me into wanting to go to Japan and study Buddhism for a variety of reasons. But I felt like I saw the same thing in Japan, that there was this, this religious tradition and this cultural tradition of around Buddhism that really informed an aesthetic tradition around sort of furniture and, and architecture, which were the two main things I was interested in Japan. So, but I think your question was more about like these areas of exploration and like what they led to otherwise in my life. So I had this sort of intellectual study. I made college work for me. This was the eighties. I was, you know, like if you were interested in money, you were studying finance, real estate, law, very, very traditional, very buttoned up. And I wasn't interested in that at all. So I was like, just even pre-Kurt Cobain, like we were grungy. We wanted to like work in coffee shops, have bands, argue about philosophy in our spare time and not have any material possessions. Like that was the, that was more the ambition of the, the communities that I was sort of part of. And then, and so then I went to Japan, sat Zen, studied martial arts, also, you know, got into trouble with, you know, chasing women and drinking a lot as a, you know, as a youngster and kind of doing those things as well. And what I found is I think, that I've always had this sort of restlessness inside of me to find the path, the tradition, the person, the community, the perspective that was somehow going to fix me. Because I think I had, this is going to get a little, maybe a little more personal, but like, I think I've always had this sense, I don't know if your, your listeners or if you will resonate with this, but I almost had this sense that like, I was going to do it wrong. Like if I wasn't careful, I was going to somehow do life wrong. And so I was always looking for the, the, the right way to do life. I was looking for the map or the thing that was going to tell me what was right. And what's interesting about that is I think the more I study things like moral philosophy, especially recently, I've kind of returned to my study of philosophy and looking specifically at moral philosophy. I'm like, it's really more the quality of question that matters and the quality of answer that matters. And I think that's something that's taken me a long time. And I think a lot of the turmoil that I've experienced in life has been like, finding the answer, committing to the answer, realizing it wasn't the answer, and then moving on to the next thing, right? And doing that again and again. And now I've just realized, like, now here I am in my mid-50s, and I'm like, I think I'm just much more comfortable with life doesn't always have to make sense, and there's always going to be some some questions, and you're always trying to just kind of do the best you can, given where you are. And in many ways, like, that's the human condition. That's life. Everything else is just sort of like a trapping on top of that. We just got very philosophical, I think. No, I love it. Honestly, I think so much of what you just said was perfect because it lines up with so much of what I think personally, even some of what I talk about on, on my course and in my newsletter is this idea of maps. And mm. it, it's so interesting because I think it intertwines with quite a few things. But one is that there's this perception that of time that we're kind of born and it's almost as though we are on a conveyor belt that is yeah. speeding us slowly or quickly towards death, however you feel about the speed at which you're moving. But we are so concerned with making the right choice and making it at the right time. It's like, oh, I'm at this point in the conveyor belt. If I don't make a decision, if I don't take this uh, turn on the highway, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss whatever the destination is. And you don't know what the destination is because you haven't gone there. But we feel as though if we don't make the right decisions and we don't make them at the right times, then it's almost like we'll never be able to find it again. And yeah. we become very obsessed with this idea of maps. I think we look around us and we build maps of the world based on what we see of other people. And I talk about this idea of everyone around us being like data points that help us figure out our place in the world and understand 
what the world, what our conceptualization of the world is. And I think the mistake is relying on maps instead of trying to find a compass and trying to find a means of navigating that helps you directionally, but is not concerned with telling you exactly where to go. Because I yeah. think the issue with trying to find exactly where to go is that typically you're following the paths of other people, giving you their advice from their own position. And there are so many other nuances, so many other variables that may have impacted their trajectory that won't apply to you. And so yours might still be different. And human life, as you know, is so impossibly complex that it's really hard to unravel all of the different variables that play a part in setting you on a particular course. Like even if, for example, when I think about the question of, oh, if you could go back, would you do everything again? In some ways, absolutely yes. In some ways, probably no, because I could not guarantee with any element of certainty that if I did every single decision that I've ever made, I would have the same outcome. I probably wouldn't because so much still changes. And also there's so much that is outside of your control at particular points. And I think all you can do is just one is maybe gather as many data points as possible and try and understand where you are in the world and then just have a strong sense of direction that propels you in some direction with a certainty of who you are and, and how you want to act in that environment. Yeah, there's a, a writer and researcher named Susan David who wrote a book called Emotional Agility. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I think she's got a new book coming out right now, too. Okay. But one of the things she talks about is like you use your values as your direction point. And, you know, like you, you lean into discomfort and complexity and you also use your emotions as data points as well. Like sort of like what angers me, what excites me, what upsets me. But she always points out that like emotions are data, but they're not directions. Like you can't, you know, it's like just because something pisses you off doesn't mean that it is something that you should be pissed off at. And it doesn't, you know, like it, that could be as much about you as it is about the thing. And so, but yet ignoring your emotions and saying emotions don't matter and trying to be a purely rational human is really, is also going to lead us in the wrong direction. I'm really fond of the work of Antonio Damasio, who wrote a book called Descartes' Error. He's a neuroscientist. And he does a lot of stuff around emotion and the way emotion sort of constrains. Like he has this idea and actually comes from, it actually corresponds to some cult research. Well, actually, I'll start with the cult stuff. So like when you look at cult members, what's often very interesting is like, let's say, let's take a cult like the, the Rajneesh or Osho cult, which was kind of the, the wild, wild country. They made a movie about it or a series about it in, in Netflix. It was a cult that I had interactions with long, long time ago, though I never, and I was never really part of it. I never went to their events, but I knew many people who were part of it. What you saw there was you saw people who were very wealthy, very accomplished and very intelligent all become a part of this, this kind of crazy cult. And what Damasio would point out and what cult researchers point out is what happens is our emotions can kind of constrain our intellect to only operate within a certain area. So you can still be a great lawyer, but it's constrained within this idea that my leader is, is an enlightened being who is going to save the world. And so like that becomes the container within which my intellect operates. And I think we all do that to greater and lesser degrees, depending upon the groups we're part of. And so I love you, like the way you're describing your orientation towards the group is not, is that like they're data points that I'm using to find, to do my own wayfinding, to navigate my own way through. And I think the sort of the danger of organizations, and this is like where my work comes from, frankly, is I'm very interested in how do groups of people come together to do things? Because it's, it's such an important part of human life, right? Like every single thing that I've ever done that has been meaningful and satisfying and exciting with my life, every single thing I've done with other people, right? It's raising a family, it's creating an, a, creating a, an artifact, you know, doing some art, doing, doing a work project that I'm proud of, creating a home that I'm proud of, right? My, my wife, you know, like we're, she's curating an event tonight that we're setting up for artists here in New York City. And like, all of these things happen with other people. And yet so often other people are also, you know, the source of so much strife in our lives and also so much of the source of social dysfunction when you like not to get all, what is it, rule 34, what about Hitler about it? But like, like Hitler by himself, like he would have been just this crazy dude, right? Like, but when he got this group of people around him to do stuff together, that's where the problem really develops. And so not only is it looking, not only are I think our maps the problems, but gurus are also become the problem, right? Like, like thinking that somebody else has the right. And it's so tempting, having fallen into it myself, it is so tempting when you are feeling vulnerable, when you are feeling insecure, when you're going through a different, you know, like I joined a cult when I was going through a divorce and had lost a job all at the same time, right? So I was kind of like 
insecure in a couple of different ways. And in steps this group saying, hey, we've got the answer. We see your idealism. We're going to harness that and we're going to help you save the world and give your life meaning. Plus, we think you're amazing. They do this thing, this love bombing thing when you first come in. And then all of a sudden you kind of find yourself, your whole life is sort of wrapped up in this path that doesn't really at the end of the day serve you because the charisma, because the story, because the narrative, because the surety has all kind of pulled you in. And I think that's sort of like the work that I'm trying to do is trying to understand how do we create people coming together to do things in ways that are healthy for all of the people within that system that really feel and that also are healthy for society as a whole, that create a more equitable society, that create a more just society and create a more sustainable human presence on the planet. And I think these questions, as you use the word complexity, these are very, very complex questions, right? Like, because I've seen really great teams do really horrible things, right? And at the same time, I've seen really how to put it, like really dedicated people, people who are like at their core trying to say, trying to do something really good in the world. And then they create a nonprofit, which is this very, very toxic workplace and it has all sorts of like crazy stuff going. And I, so I see this all the time. And so like, what I'm trying to understand is like, how do we come together? How do we actually leave the world a little bit better than we found it? And how do we do that together without stepping on each other, without hurting each other in some way? Yeah, you touched on something which I find really interesting, which is essentially the power of groups. And it made me think about yeah. Tim Urban, who you've probably come across, who's a writer on the internet. And I was listening to something, well, something he said inspired me to write something else, which is essentially just about the fact that on our own, as individual humans, we're actually so useless, particularly now. And thinking even back to what you were talking about before, about you know this idea of working with your hands and building things and all the impact that that has and how much of that we've lost. And so Tim Urban had mm -hmm. this example that he used, which was essentially that if uh, you know some kind of witch or an alien decided to magic away everything that we've built, everything that humans have built, and, and we were just here wherever we currently are on the earth with just our you know, just completely naked with no clothes, nothing, no machinery, nothing. Could we build a pencil? And the answer is that we probably couldn't because it, it's so interesting when you think of, of the, I guess it's the, like, where does the human exist? Does the human exist as the individual person or as almost like the ant colony where the ant colony is really the mind and the ant colony yeah. is, it's only together and as a group that we can often create and have a much larger impact on the world. That's not to say that individuals can't. Even still, like the, the way that the work of individuals passes through to the wider collective is through others, right? It, it's disseminated through others. You know, even Einstein was not handing out pamphlets to every single person in order to disseminate his ideas. They were able to spread through the collective of scientists, right? And through this broader organization and through this broader idea that there's a community of people that are dedicated to this thing and they are committed to furthering certain ideas. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, yeah, it's, there's so much wrapped up in this idea of as individuals, we try and find our identity and often we try and find our identity in groups and we try and find our place in the world and try and find our orientation as we've discussed. And it's interesting how through the power of groups, it can be for positive and for negative. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm really glad that you highlighted that because I've probably spent less time thinking of the negative side, but I definitely think, you know, there's the positive side where through the power of groups, we have this power to create and we have this power to do all kinds of things. Like going back to the example of the pencil, what stands out so much about that is that it seems ludicrously simple. Like the pencil is one of the first thing you see drawn in children's books. But when you think about everything that goes into it, mm -hmm. you're cutting trees and you're sanding it down and you're filing it, all of these things. You're getting lead from the earth. Or I don't think they use lead graphite from the earth. Like even yeah. every single step, everything that it takes to do all of that, you have to get rubber. I'm not sure where they get the rubber from. Is it rubber plants or is it some kind of something that we make chemically now to approximate yeah. rubber? So yeah. th there's so many things that we could, no one person could do. But as a group, we can. But then on the flip side, you do have this perhaps destructive power where in trying to find yourself in the group, you can lose yourself to the group and you can become assimilated into this mass that takes you anywhere and you lose maybe some sense of agency and a sense of being able to maintain who you are and, and your values, like you talked about before, about how important values are. So I'm interested to know, just from what you were saying now, because you also highlighted the importance of the leader of the group as well and how much of an impact mm. the leader of a group can have on swaying its direction and, and swaying its impact. And I'm interested to know your thoughts on where 
well, whether or not you think at all there is a leaning of power between the impact of the leader of the group and the impact of the community within the group itself. Yeah, there, there's so much in in this conversation. And I think the, I mean, kind of going back to sort of some foundations and first principles, like the place that I start from is, look, that humans as primates, we have some, we're a very kind of unique primate in a lot of ways, but we're, we're unique, not necessarily in terms of brain size, but what we're unique in is in terms of social behavior. So there's a biologist by the name of E.O. Wilson, who he was an ant biologist, actually, that was his main focus. But he wrote a book called The Social Conquest of Earth, where he looked at humans like in groups, we are super powerful to the to Tim Urban's point, right, that in groups, we're, we're super powerful, but as individuals that we, we tend not to be. And, you know, he points out that all other species that have the level of sociality that we do tend to be hive insects or, you know, like, or siblings. Like the, like the idea that if we're walking down the street and we see a baby carriage rolling into traffic, that we would jump out to save that baby, even if we'd had no idea whose baby it was or whatever, right? We, if we saw another human, especially an innocent, especially a young innocent in distress, that we would risk our own lives in order to save that. And we would be counted as heroes if we did. Can you imagine like you walk down the street, you see this baby carrier, you jump out in the street, you push it out of the way, you get killed. Like there's going to be news stories about you. There's going to be, you know, like GoFundMe campaigns for your family. There's going to be like, like we're going to hold you up as a hero because you sacrificed yourself for a member of the collective. That is very unusual. As a matter of fact, no other primate would do that. Every other primate would like eat the baby or ignore the baby. You know, like chimpanzees are notoriously sort of violent in this way and it's kind of gross. So I kind of start there. And so I, you're, what you're setting up, I think one of the core moral dilemmas or the core ethical dilemmas that we have as humans, which is the me versus us, right? So it's sort of like, and I think we can, we contain both, right? Like this idea, and I'm, I'm an American, so I come from a highly individualistic rather than a collectivist society where libertarianism and this idea that it's all about my freedom from constraint is what how freedom is defined actually, you know, in the in in the U.S. Rather than sort of a freedom to do things, so we do not necessarily we are not committed to providing a basic level of resources to all our, our entire population. What we are committed to, apparently is providing maximal freedom from government intervention, government constraint into every member of society, which is often a freedom to starve and a freedom to fail and a freedom to, you know, sort of to create a very, you know, sort of stratified class level society, which is obviously, that's not where I would take things, right? I would actually say, how do we provide a freedom, you know, kind of a kind of a base level, a base level of freedom. But I think it all goes back to how we behave in groups. What's interesting to me about all of this is that I think it comes down to when we say groups, I'm not saying like society. I'm not saying the corporation that I work for. I'm not saying the government. I'm saying like my neighbors, you know, like the people that I interact with, my workmates, my friends, my neighbors, the people that I, the shop owners that I interact with on a regular basis. It's the people that I have direct one-on-one -on -one interaction with that I think are the most impactful. And um, Nicholas Christakis has done really interesting work at the Yale Human Nature Lab where he'll map that if your friend gets divorced, your likelihood of getting divorced goes up dramatically, right? Just statistically dramatically. If your friend's friend gets divorced, your likelihood of getting divorced still goes up. You don't even have to know who that friend is, even know that they got divorced. But yet, statistically speaking, you're likely. So these, these sort of like these things travel through social networks. And so what I become very interested in is this sort of there's a systems theory idea that if you're going to create a large system that works, you have to evolve it from a small system that works. You can't build it from scratch. I cannot build a government from scratch. I cannot build an economy from scratch. I have to start off with a small system that works. And so to my mind, that becomes the team. So I've focused my work mostly on developing either better team leaders or better teams, because I'll work with leadership teams. I'll work with teams sometimes to help me them better, or helping those leadership teams develop the sort of like structures and systems that support better teamwork within their organization, right? So rather than treating people as isolated individuals within the organization, I want to treat them as members of a social unit that is there to deliver value in some way. So that's really, and I think to me, that's the mindset shift that I'm trying to kind of take in my work, which is away from creating organizations as collections of individuals, isolated individuals, to creating organizations as collections of small teams that are able to kind of work together as both social units and units of sort of production and value or value production. And I think that to me is 
that's how we begin to account for the complexity of modern life is by started focusing on the networks that we are a part of. And we can do that as individuals, but I think we can also do that as organizations. So that's, yeah, that's kind of where my, where I take that work. Sure. So to bring this out, out of the abstract, how does that look day to day? So, and I know we're very much getting into the territory of your book, which is radical alignment and a lot of the work that you do now. So yeah, let's get into that. Yeah. So you know, like I look at this as almost mundane. So I've learned, and maybe this is my own prejudice, right? Because I was in a cult and I followed a charismatic leader, but I've also seen the dangers of charismatic leadership. And I see that leadership, we often see, we often use people like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or, you know, Larry Ellison, you know, like it's all tech people now, right? Those are the, those are the great leaders of our era, right? And then there may be some like sort of like more moral or philosophical leaders too, but like the people, and we, we tend to hold them up and frankly, they tend to be jerks, you know, they tend to kind of like, they tend to be charismatic and they tend to be jerks, right? Like, which is, which is weird that those two things go together. I love Jobs. I love using him as an example because I do think Jobs actually was a really good leader. And I've known people that work for him. I actually know his, his former chief of staff fairly well. And he was difficult. He was a difficult human to work with. And he did some things, morally speaking, that I find repugnant, like denying that he was, that, that he was the father of his daughter and having to be forced by the courts in order to like, pay child support like as one of the wealthiest men in the world. Like, I find that morally repugnant. But I think what happens is, is that in the, in the consciousness that we begin to think of leaders as, as jerks, as decisive visionary jerks, right? Like that's almost like the, the, the model we have. They see things that other people don't see. They can tell stories in a way that other people can't tell them. And they don't care about anything but being successful. They're single-minded and focused. And that's frankly, I think, how we end up with, I'm watching the Theranos TV show now, and I also read the book, like that's how we end up with Elizabeth Holmes, right? Who idolized Steve Jobs, but she idolized the wrong parts of Jobs. What, what made Jobs actually a great leader was that when he came back to Apple, was it 20, 25 years ago now, right? He came back after having been kicked out he said, look, we're only going to build four things. We're going to build a portable and a desktop machine, one for the, you know, each for professional and for personal. You know, he could just create a four by four. This is what we're going to create. We're going to focus. To my mind, that's what a leader does. A leader says, this is what we're doing. We're focusing on these things. And he had the great vision to know what to focus on as well. But a leader doesn't have to even have that. They just have to have the ability to kind of constrain the attention of that, of that group into something that's valuable. And then frankly, a lot of the rest of it is getting out of the way. A lot of the rest of it is bringing the right people in, letting them develop the sort of the social environment that works. And so when I think of teams, when I think of organizations, I think we have two things going on. And these are big things that we you know, can subdivide in a lot of ways. But one thing is we have operational stuff going on. We have to have a vision, a mission, a metrics. We have to have some processes. We have to have some tools. We have to have some information. We have to have time. We have to know we're part of the team. We have to meet regularly. These are all very sort of block and tackle operational pieces. And then underneath that is the kind of cultural or emotional pieces, right? Where it's sort of like, we also need to trust each other. We need to respect each other. We need to have a degree of psychological safety so that I can bring out crazy ideas and you're not going to kick me out of the group or fire me because I had a crazy idea or make me feel bad about myself. You're just going to say, Bob, you know, like, oh, hey, I'll take that and I'll, you know, and I'll do something with it, right? This idea of like, we, we can have some friction with each other, but it's productive friction because we're sort of arguing and excited about the best way to do things. And I think Jobs actually did that very, very well when you look at sort of the culture that, that, that Apple has. It gets a little culty at times, but it's not, not, not horribly so. But you have people that are focused on real problems, focused on really interesting design criteria. And he hired and brought together like this very unique group of people that was able to like iterate towards frankly, some very, very, some magical stuff. I mean, I love, I, I love my Apple products, obviously. And I think to my mind, and, th- and that to me, like that's what my work is about. So my book is about sort of a framework that I created that helps with the emotional piece. It helps people understand each other and begin to build the foundations of trust, begin psychological safety, which are so essential. They take a long time to build often and they can be destroyed almost instantaneously, right? You know, like if, I, if you betray somebody's trust, that person will not trust you for a very long time, if ever again. And so what I, the framework that I created 
essentially it takes us, it helps begin to take us through Tuckman's sort of developmental model, right? So forming, storming, norming, performing, right? We get the group together. Then we have to like rub up against each other and figure out, you know, like where there's friction, where there's not friction. Then we need to develop some norms that help us work together. And only then can we start performing. And so my, a lot of my work is around that initial stage of a team development where it's like, okay, we're coming together to do some, how do we develop those norms that are both that are constructive relatively quickly and that also going back to the me versus us piece right like they don't step on me too much they actually bring out the best in me they allow me to actually be me but they also allow me to be part of the group and i think it's that you know sort of it's, it's sort of that conversation and then a lot of the other work i do is around the operational pieces or the structural pieces inside of organizations that kind of help support these things but i think we have to we have to have both we can't do one or the other it's not all, it's not all like trust falls and hugs it's tr- it's it's it can be that or it can be what those things are designed to serve, but it also has to be like, well, we have to meet regularly. We have to have good plans. We have to have good tracking tools. We have to, you know, have have the right skills on the team yeah. and all sorts of other stuff as well, yeah. So the next question that I want to ask is, what is it that you think that we most frequently get wrong about leadership? And the reason that I ask is that when I think of some of the people you just mentioned and this idea of charismatic leadership, and even the idea of cults that we've discussed as well. What I find fascinating is that on some level, we deeply crave cults. Like we really yeah. want leadership. We love this idea of someone that will come along with clarity and that will build trust and that will almost lead us to the promised land and, and that will galvanize the troops. And it, there are so many scenarios where that is exactly what is needed and that is exactly what people want. And so I think what you find in many of those scenarios is those types of people are incredibly rare like most people when you when if you were to go out and do a poll and ask people how's your boss most people's bosses are not galvanizing them to jump out of bed at 2 a.m in the morning and and crack on and work all hours because they love what they're doing and they believe in the vision they're doing it out of a sense of compulsion they doing it because they're usually miserable they're usually trying to get some money trying to do things for themselves so it's almost I am here to serve myself. I'm not here to serve the cause. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's typically the idea. And so what I find fascinating is that typically we're constantly straining against this dynamic where it's only once someone comes in that fits this model of almost something that we want and we look for. And there are there are elements of something that we're looking for, at least. Not that they are the perfect encapsulation of that. But there are elements of something that we look for that we see and people gravitate towards yeah. that. And you see, even with the Elizabeth Holmes scenario, there are people leaving their jobs, discarding members of their family to gravitate gravitate towards this light, towards whatever it is that they see in this person. And also the second part is that the love for the person or whatever is drawing you towards the person seems to surpass the love of the thing. Because all of these venture capitalists and and people that are investing in Theranos, for example, are obviously in it to make money. They're not in it to make friends. I mean, some people want to have friends, but ultimately you are investing and throwing hundreds of millions of dollars into this company because you want a return. Mm -hmm. And you're not seeing the return. You're not seeing the return. You're not seeing the machine that is supposed to be doing the work. You're not seeing any of the tangible stuff that that you've told yourself that you're here looking Mm -hmm. for. But because of this person, you are here and you're staying. And no matter what happens, the stories that come out, the 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 rumors and everything that's happening, you stay there. So I, I really want to understand, okay, one, what is it that makes that happen? And two, what is it that we're getting wrong about leadership where you have such binary outcomes, where you have the one in a million where there's someone that promises to take you to the moon and it all ends up being a farce. Yeah. But then on the other side, there is the mundane swamp of most people's jobs where no one is motivated to do much of anything unless it's putting food in their family's mouths. There's so much in there. I think the, you know, we have some core psychological needs as humans, right? Like I think we all need to feel a sense of security, which is often represented by money, right? In our, like we need to feel like, hey, I'm going to be fed. I'm going to be clothed. Like if I don't have a sense of security, I feel very unstable. Kind of going through Maslow in some way, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. We got to have those base needs taken care of. We also need to have a sense of, of significance, right? That we are important to a group of people, that we are valued by other people. This is really, this is very core. This would correspond to kind of the middle, you know, sort of the social needs part of, of Maslow's hierarchy. And then we also want to have a, have a sense of meaning of, of our lives, right? We want to have some kind of like 
self-actualization or that, that our life has a purpose, that our life has a meaning. Like these are also things that, that people really care about. And I think what happens in a cultic dynamic, and I think the two biggest examples I can think of where this is so clear in the last few, the last decade would be WeWork and Theranos, right? Both had inspiring, charismatic leaders, people who told stories very well. I think in the case of Elizabeth Holmes, it was a fraudulent story. It was a fiction. I think in the case of Adam Newman at WeWork, it was not fraudulent so much as exaggerated. You know, he was building a business that actually did have some financial, you know, did have a product. The product wasn't nearly as valuable as he said it was, right, as as the story that he spun. But, you know, office space is valuable. It's not going to change the world. It's not going to solve the world's social problems, which is what he was spinning. So what happens is, is when people use the meaning and the significance, they, they kind of start at the top. I feel like that's what happens in occultic storytelling is we start at the top. We say, we're going to give you a sense of meaning. We're going to give you a sense of social significance and stories. And one way to know that you're, or at least you should have some red flags. If someone is telling you how amazing you are within a few minutes of meeting you, they're probably trying to manipulate you in some way. Like, be really careful around that person. It's, it's, it's something called love bombing. It's something that narcissists do. It's something that Machiavellianists and, and even psychopaths will do occasionally in order to manipulate people and kind of like bring them into their, into, your, into their orbit. And what's interesting about these people is they tend to bring in people who are manipulative, tend to surround themselves with people who are not. They tend to surround themselves with people who are trusting that then creates this other layer that, you know, like it sort of masks their sort of like kind of cultic dynamic. But what we see in cults often is that people are, they, I believe this anyway, all right, this is what I see is that your needs for security, your more sort of fundamental needs begin to be sacrificed in service of these more social or these more meaning-based needs. And in some cases, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like if I'm part of a community and, you know, like I think about my family sometimes, like if there was a way for me to sacrifice my life so my wife and my child could live on... I would probably make that choice. I don't say that altruistically. I think that's something that feels right to me. That feels that feels good to me, and I and it and it does feel human to me. It does feel real. It does. But for me to sacrifice all of my time and energy and to work at below market rates, which is what happened at WeWork a lot, right? Like people have sacrificed almost their entire lives to work at below market rates to rent offices to other people, right? Like, and they did it because they believed they were changing the world. And you hear Newman use this language again and again. We are the only people who can make the world a better place. We are the only people, you know, like you are the most amazing people. So he's love bombing and doing the, the purpose thing all at the same time. Meanwhile, everybody's working way too long, getting sick. And as soon as they're no longer useful to the to the organization, the organization's like, get the hell out of here, right? Like the organization doesn't have that commitment to you that they're asking, they're not even not even a fraction of it to you that they're asking for from you. So I think about this in terms of what I think of as toxic charisma, right? Like, so the charisma can be great, but it also can be toxic. And toxicity is often defined by its impact. So whether or not you're in a toxic environment, which maybe your listeners might be asking themselves, like, am I working for a sociopath or am I not? I think you ask yourself, like, is the, is it clear the transaction that's going on here? And do I feel like I'm getting a fair share of that? Or am I always sacrificing something for this other story? And do I feel a sense, a similar sense of commitment from the company to me that they are asking for from me? And I would say in most, in capitalist society, this is almost always out of balance. It's almost always that the collective, as represented by the company, is asking more from the individual than it's offering to the individual. Yeah, so look at the, look at the results and, and also maybe ask your friends if it makes sense to you, because often we get wrapped up and like, hey, this person sounds great to me. You know, I did this when I met my wife as well, because I had a, a history of selecting bad relationships. I went around to my friends who I liked. and I was like, what do you think of her? And they were like, oh, she's great. And I was like, good. <laughs> All right. You know, so the one question that I do want to ask is maybe from the other side of the table. So I think we've largely been talking from the perspective of the individual, the person within the group. But from the leader's perspective, what do you think is the highest value thing that you can do or implement or be and the one caveat that i'll add to this is that i think sometimes we talk about all the soft skills and we say oh a leader has to be just nice and and do these nice things but Mm -hmm. if a leader comes in and all they do is be nice sometimes they are also the people that get run over and they are ineffective and the business doesn't go anywhere because they can't 
strategize effectively, they can't move things forward. And so I think there is also a balance inherent there where there are super important soft skills that you need to have to be able to lead great teams and to be able to galvanize people and get people to do things. But I think on the other side, there is also the tangible impact piece. And I, I think you slightly touched on that before in terms of the other mechanisms that you need to be able to bring. But I think there's a balance there where you also get a lot of people that just default to KPIs and they default to, okay, here's the metric, here's the here's what you need to do this month. You have to make these this number of sales, we have to push out this number of features. Okay, done, that's it. And that and that's where you get cultures that are people just, you know, coming in and, and pushing the clock and just coming in, serving their hours, serving their time and, and going home. So I guess the question is maybe it's either, you know, how do you find that balance or what is it that you think is the most valuable piece that a leader needs to have? Yeah. So I apologize. I'm going to answer with three with three things rather than one thing because I do I think there's a I think there's a few. So the first the first is really is the straightforward operational stuff, right? And that's you know whether you're using KPIs, OKRs, whatever, you know, like here's what we're doing, making sure people have the resources, the time, the tools, the information they need in order to do a good job, the skills they need to do a good job, get some retraining if they're in there if, if needed, and then also making sure that there's sort of you know, that you're planning iteratively and you're doing, you know, like, so people have a sense of, they have a sense of direction and they have the the time and, and work and all the things they need in order to do a good job. So that's like sort of the operational piece. And that's often quite mundane, but it also sometimes takes some time to figure out exactly what those things are. The other thing is, I think as a leader, you want to make sure that you actually care about the people that work for you as humans. And I mean that beyond their utility to you and to your mission. Not that you can't care about that as first and foremost. It's a transactional relationship. People are doing work in exchange for their labor, right? Like, yeah, like care about the mission, but you also have to, I think, you know, my the one of my favorite CEOs I ever worked for the first thing he said to me is even in the hiring conversation, he's like, look, we don't expect you to be here forever. As a matter of fact, we expect you to be here maybe at least two years, maybe a little bit longer if we were, if we we're lucky. Where do you see yourself going after this? Like, where does this fit in the trajectory of your life and your career? And I, like, I almost burst into tears, I think, when he asked me that question, because I was like, oh, my God, I feel so like seen and cared for. I don't have to participate in this in this myth that the business is going to become my whole life, right? That his business is going to become my whole life. And I felt so respected and I still like just deeply, deeply respect him. So, and that was all like, that sowed the seeds for us to have a really good interpersonal relationship. It was still a boss subordinate relationship and it was never a friend relationship, but it was always a relationship characterized by trust and mutual respect. And it made me very loyal to him in, in a certain way. And then the third piece is that's relationship between leader and individual. The other thing I think leaders need to watch out for, which can be much harder, is they need to watch out for the relationships in within the team and within the organization. And what I mean by this is Kim Scott in her latest book, just really her latest book's called Just Work. And I think she really nailed it when she said there are kind of three kinds of dysfunction or three sources of dysfunction inside of teams. One is bias where all of our brains are biased, all of our brains see the world based on our own perspective, based on our own life experiences, based on our own cognitive limitations. We all have biases. It's up to the leader and it's up to all individuals to make sure that bias isn't running the show. So sometimes, so like if I'm a white male leader, I wanna make sure that I have some, some black females or some people who don't look like me, who don't come from the background of me, who, are, who I trust to call me out when I'm being biased, when I'm, you know, like, and who I even specifically seek and maybe even in some cases pay to specifically bust my bias. Like when my wife and I wrote the book, we hired a transgendered person uh, of color to read the book and make sure that our language was as inclusive as it possibly could be, that our bias wasn't running the show. We have to bust our own biases. But the other things come into get much more problematic, right? So bias is not meaning it. I messed up, I excluded somebody, said something stupid, didn't mean it. Sometimes bias can metastasize into prejudice, which is where I'm suddenly now saying, this is my real opinion of, of somebody who has a different identity, right? Like I, I believe my own bias. I bought my own BS essentially. And then the third is bullying, which is being mean about it. So not meaning it, meaning it, and being mean about it. Bias, prejudice, and bullying. What she points out is that bias, sometimes you just need to point it out to people, and that's very helpful. And so everybody's biased, and so we need to create an, a, a, a group environment where we can all talk about our biases, and I can talk about your biases, and you can talk about my biases, and we can just kind of like, we can be open and honest and real with each other. And sometimes it creates some friction, but it never blows us apart, and it always leads to a better situation. But if somebody is expressing prejudice or bullying within the organization, those people need to go or they need to face consequences immediately for what they're doing. Those kinds of behaviors are just not acceptable, especially bullying, 
prejudice, you know, like if you can keep it out of the workplace, maybe, right? But we need, but though, but we need to create consequences, and often we need to get rid of those people. What's challenging for leaders is that bullies will often, if you are higher in the social hierarchy than they are, the bully will be very nice to you. You will not see the bullying behavior. Mm. So you have to do skip level interviews. You have to ask other people how they feel about each other. You have to like you. You have to do. There's a whole lot of other stuff you have to do. Bullies and people, bullies especially, like uh, are very very good at hiding themselves. And so you have to be really really I don't know rigorous in your listening techniques in order to make sure that these people you get these people out of your organization as quickly as you can. And as soon as you detect them, get them out. Right. Like do not like try to like nurture them along. I'm sorry. You know, like the cost of keeping that person around, the cost of having, no matter how brilliant they are, no matter how well connected they are, no matter whether they're the nephew of your boss, whatever, the cost of having that person on your team is, is frankly, most often fatal to the team's productivity, functionality, and that social environment you're trying to create. Hope that was helpful. That was super helpful. And I'm sure that is going to be tremendously helpful to all the people that are going to listen to this. Cool. Yeah. Just thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. It was so helpful. This was fun. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.